Today on the Scottso Podcast, we are in our series on the Gospel of John. John writes his gospel that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Enjoy and be challenged by the word of the Lord. Well, good morning and welcome to Scott's Hill. So glad that all of you were able to get out of your warm homes, get in those cold automobiles and drive here to a warm building this morning. We didn't know we were going to have a warm building for certain. Our air went out this past week. We thought we might have to move it to the Crosspoint Center. But fortunately, we've got great guys and Greg Brinson and his company that came and helped us and got the heat going. And uh, so we got some heat this morning. So we're glad. And now I'm, somebody said, all right, Phil, you got to bring the heat this morning now as well. Um, so as we're talking about the Crosspoint Center, let me just give you something that's coming on the horizon. Uh, it's been cold outside. Our crowds have been a little bit lower than they typically have been. But what we have seen through the course of this year and all through the summer is a constant growth in the life of our church and both services to the point that we are 95 to 100% full in both services. Now, we know that we've got, yes, we praise the Lord for that. But we've got to make some adjustments with that coming in the future if we want to continue to minister to the people that God is sending our way. So one of the things we're going to do is go back to the Crosspoint Center, and we're going to launch a Crosspoint Center service there at the 11 o'clock hour. We're going to do that on April the 10th, the Sunday before Easter Sunday, and then on April the 17th, we're going to continue on because we'll have five services on that Sunday. But what we want you to do is to be praying about how you can participate and maybe joining those folks that are going to go to the Crosspoint Center. The Crosspoint Center is not going to be an overflow. It's not going to be a place where we just, this is going to be a place where you go, you worship, you bring your family, you bring your friends, and we start using that as a venue. There will be live music there. Everything will be live except for the preaching. But there will be preaching live that when I'm going to go there and preach and then come here and preach, but you will never know where I am on what Sundays. And that usually fits my life because I usually don't know where I am from day to day. So we've got that coming down and we're going to give you more information about that, more opportunities to be praying on that and making a decision to help us to facilitate the continued growth that God is bringing to our community. And more will come later as we talk about that. Contemporary poet by the name of, and he's also a comedian, by the name of Taylor Mowley has written a wonderful piece several years ago. And the piece that he writes is amazing because it beautifully captures our culture's inability to speak with authority and to speak with conviction. The title of this piece that he writes is called Totally Like Whatever, you know? And I think it captures a lot of mindsets today. I'm going to read this to you, but I'm going to attempt to read it to you in the way that he performs it, okay? So I'm going to do my best, so just hang in there. This is how he begins. In case you haven't realized, it has somehow become uncool to sound like you know what you're talking about or believe strongly in like what you're saying Invisible question marks and parenthetical you-knows have been attaching themselves to the ends of our sentences, even when those sentences aren't like questions, you know? <laughs> Declarative sentences, so-called, because they used to like declare things to be true, okay? As opposed to other things that are like totally, you know, 
not. <laughs> they have been infected by a totally hip and tragically cool inter interrogative tone. You know what I'm saying? Like, don't think I'm uncool because I've noticed this, okay? I have nothing personally invested in my own opinions. I'm just like inviting you to join me in the bandwagon on my own uncertainties. What has happened to our conviction? Where are the limbs out on which we once walked? Have they been like chopped down with the rest of the rainforest, you know? Or is it like we just have nothing to say? Has society become so filled with conflicted feelings of yeah that we've just gotten to the point where we are the most aggressively inarticulate generation to come along since, you know, a long time ago? So I implore you, I entreat you, and I challenge you to speak with conviction, to say what you believe in a manner that bespeaks the determination with which you say it. Because contrary to the wisdom of the bumper sticker, it is a not enough these days to simply question authority. You've got to speak with it too. And I thought, what a beautiful picture of the uncertainties of our beliefs, the uncertainties of what we declare. And it's as though we're living in a culture where nobody wants to be bold and to really speak what they believe in fear of offending someone or in fear of maybe even being canceled in our culture today. And I think that this is certainly true of the Christian life. It seems that of all the groups that have become uncertain to speak what they believe as though these beliefs have transformed our lives seems to be within the body of Christ. We're so concerned with what the world thinks and how they might cancel us that we don't speak with boldness as we used to. And we're seeing this in our culture because we're living in a culture that there is no longer any absolute truth. And when there's no longer any absolute truth, what we talked about last week, then people will develop their own truth. And if people develop their own truth, they'll develop their own lifestyle. And if people develop their own lifestyle and their own convictions, then they have to have a God that matches the convictions of their lives. And so what they end up doing is no longer worshiping the God who is, but they want to worship the God they want. And if there's any person that has gone through the transformation of remodeling, reimagining, redesigning, it has been the Lord Jesus. And as you look through time and you see how people have tried to reimagine him and try to get the Jesus that they want that matches their own lifestyle. And we see in our own culture that there are so many Jesuses out there. No one has been more marginalized or commercialized than Jesus Christ. So let me give you some of the Jesuses that have come through our culture. How about this? There's the Puritan Jesus. He's the one that's always mad, and he slaps you on the knuckles anytime you do something wrong. So people are fearful of that Jesus. Then there's the postcard Jesus. You know, the copper-toned skin, blue eyes, blonde hair, feathered, blowing back in the wind. The perfect Hollywood model Jesus. Then there's the get out of hell free Jesus. If I just get Jesus and, and, he, and I give my life to him, then I don't have to worry about going to hell, but I can live my life like hell. Here's another one, the hippie Jesus. This is the one in the blue jeans and the t-shirt in the van down by the river, listen to the Doobie Brothers, Jesus is just all right with me. 
This is the groovy Jesus, you know, that man, he's just always just cool. You good, bro. You know, the ATM Jesus, the Jesus who can fix my financial problems, the Jesus who can help me to live a more prosperous, my best life now. The Grammy Award speech Jesus. He shows up at the Grammys and some a rapper comes up there with this music that is absolutely profane and insulting and speaks about violence and he wants to thank the Lord Jesus for that and Jesus is probably looking from heaven and saying, bro, I had nothing to do with that. How about this, the role model Jesus? He's the one that just really, we look at him and he encourages us. He's kind of a, a catchphrase. He's kind of a pick-me-up. He becomes a logo for our lives and kind of a generic brand. What about this, the therapeutic Jesus? He's the one that just makes me feel good about myself. You know, I feel so much better when I talk about this Jesus. Or what about this one, the homeboy Jesus? He's my homeboy, you know? He's watching my back. The problem with all of these is they don't capture a picture of the real Jesus. And if we're not careful, even as a church, we can fall into the temptation of creating a Jesus that's most convenient for our lives, amen? amen. We can do that. And we can buy into the lies of culture and try to form this Jesus that fits all oh, my convictions. And here's the problem. When we do that, we are presenting to the world a Jesus that is not of the Bible. And when we do that, we have to understand that is why the world doesn't get Jesus because they're not seeing the real Jesus. In his wonderful little book, Your Jesus is Too Safe, Jared C. Wilson writes these words. He says, you think if anyone's got a handle on Jesus, it would be the Christian church. But we've settled for the glossy portrait. We've used him and abused him, made him into types and stereotypes, taken his message out of context and made it about being a better person or being cool or helping us to help ourselves. Consequently, what we have today in a world where Jesus is most cited, most recognized, and most admired is a generation of people who don't know the Gospels very well, which means we don't know Jesus very well. Amen. And the thing is this, if we're going to know God, we need to know Jesus. John 17, 3, Jesus says this, this is eternal life, that they might know me and my Father who sent me. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to go back to the Bible. We want to look with fresh eyes on who is the Jesus of the Bible. And let's put away all of our cultural thoughts about who this Jesus is. Let's put away all of our own um, conveniences that we want Jesus to fill. And let's go back to what God's word says to us who this Jesus is. So today we're launching a new series on the Gospel of John. And we want to look from the, from the writing of John to get portraits of who Jesus is. So for the next 13 weeks, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the various portraits that John writes in this Gospel about who Jesus is. And in seeing who he is will lead us to worship the true Jesus and transform our own lives as we seek to allow him to have his way to change us for eternity. Now, why the Gospel of John? Well, a couple of reasons. Number one, we just finished the book of Revelation. And John wrote the book of Revelation. And in Revelation, we saw the portrait of Jesus in eternity future. But if we go to John, this is going to be our prequel. 
We're going to go to the gospel and we're going to see Jesus and his ministry on earth. So we're going to go in a prequel kind of, uh, staying with John, but going back to look at the picture of who Jesus is and how he ministered and made a difference in the lives of humanity. But secondly, we want to look at it because John captures portraits of Jesus that the other disciples don't. Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about Jesus and the things of what Jesus said and what Jesus did. John captures who Jesus is. So we want to look at that. And then secondly, John gives us a perspective of Jesus in a way that the other gospel writers don't. Matthew and Mark start with the genealogy and lead us to the birth narrative. Mark, Matthew and Luke do that. Mark starts with the fulfillment of prophecy. John does it. He starts in eternity past. And he gives us the Jesus of eternity past. And it's really interesting about John. His gospel starts with eternity past of Jesus. The last book he wrote, his revelation, talks about eternity future with Jesus. And in the gospel is all his life between there. So as we study the book of John, we're going to look and see the real images of who Jesus is. Now, let me just give you a couple of uh, notes before we get started here. The Gospel of John is written by John, who is one of the original 12 disciples. He is the brother of James, who were James and John, sons of Zebedee. They were fishermen, and they were very rambunctious and outspoken. They were known as the sons of thunder. They were the original, one of the original 12 disciples. Now, Jesus had about 120 disciples. Of the 120, he had 12 that he called to follow him closely. Of the 12, he had three. Of the three, he had the one. And the one was John. John was the beloved disciple. When we go to the gospel of John, John never mentions his own name. He always refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. Now, if you're going to not mention your name, you at least let the world know forever that you were Jesus's favorite disciple, right? So that's what he does. And uh, the only time when you see John's name mentioned is always John the Baptist. So don't be confused with that. And so the key phrase or the key word all through the gospel is believe. It appears over a hundred times and the goal is that we would believe. The key verse is in John chapter 20, verse 31. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so the whole purpose of this series is us to believe what God's word says about Jesus. And that in believing those portraits that the Holy Spirit lays out for us, we will be transformed and changed as we worship him and as we allow him to have his impact in our lives. Now, like I said, each week, we're gonna look at a different picture of who Jesus is. And today we have to begin in the beginning. We have to begin where John began. And where did John begin? John began by saying that Jesus is God and man. He is God and man. John began in a very offensive way to his culture because people were offended that John would declare that Jesus was God and that he shared deity with God. People were offended by that. And you know what? Many people today in our own culture are offended by that. When you tell them that Jesus is God, many people become offended. Why are they offended? Because if he is God, then everything he said is true. And if everything he said is true, then we must trust him and submit to him. 
And if I must trust him and submit to him, then there's only one way to the Father. And if there's only one way to the Father, then there's only one religion and one approach. And all the other religions of the world are wrong. And people become offended by that. But we're going to start with the declarative statements that John is unambiguous about. And he begins that he is God and he is man. Here's how he begins. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. He begins by telling us, Jesus as God. And in this picture, he gives us five important truths that you and I must know if we're going to worship the Jesus of the Bible. If we're going to have the right picture of who Jesus is, it begins always with his deity. This is who he is. He is God. Now he breaks this down and he gives us five things that we must always remember about Jesus. Here's the first thing. Jesus shares eternity with the Father and the Spirit. Jesus shares eternity with the Father and the Spirit. That means he is co-eternal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He says it this way, in the beginning was the Word. Now when John says in the beginning, he's not talking about in the beginning of Jesus. He's talking about in the beginning, but when creation was being formed, Jesus was the Word. Now, the word was here is very important because there are two meanings in the Greek for that word. One of the words that's used for was means come into being. That means something that didn't exist before came into being. The other word is has already existed beforehand. And so the word that John uses here is the second, that in the beginning was the word who already existed beforehand. Jesus is not a created being like the demons and the angels. Jesus has always been. There's never been a time when Jesus did not exist. He is co-eternal. And as far back as eternity past goes, Jesus was there. He did not come to exist in 4 or 3 BC. He had always existed. There was never a point where Jesus did not exist. In fact, Jesus makes this claim himself. He says in John 8, 58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. There's never been a time. Now, you and I can't comprehend that. There's a time when we begin things and we end. Our days begin, our days end. This sermon begins and you're hoping that it'll end soon. And so what happens is we see the reality of the beginning and the ends. But there is none for Jesus. There's never been a time where he has not existed because he is co-eternal with God and with the Holy Spirit. Here's the second thing John tells us. He says that Jesus is the expression of the Father's nature. He perfectly expressed everything about who the Father is. In the beginning was the word. Now the word word is pretty significant. The Greeks saw the word word as an impersonal force that spoke about some kind of power, intellect, and wisdom. The Jews saw the word word as a divinely 
powerful force of wisdom and intellect that came from Almighty God himself. So John takes this and combines it for both the Greeks and for the Jews and said that Jesus is the expression of God the Father. Everything we hear about God the Father is the expression of who Jesus is. He perfectly expresses the nature of God in everything he does. The Father's omnipotent. Jesus is omnipotent. The Father's omniscient. Jesus is omniscient. The Father is omnipresent. Jesus has been omnipresent from eternity past. In fact, on one occasion, one of his disciples, Philip, said this, show us the Father and we'll believe you. And he responds to him and says, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? And the writer of Hebrews says this, he says that he was the exact representation of God. Exactly. And so Jesus shares the very expression of everything within the Godhood. Here's the third thing. Jesus shares equality with the divine community. Now, it's one thing for him to be co-eternal. It's one thing for him to be the expression of the Father. But it's another thing for him to be equal to the Father and the Spirit. He says this, and the word was with God. The word with doesn't just mean that Jesus was hanging out with, with the, the Father and the Spirit. It doesn't mean that he was around them. The word with literally means it is a personal, intimate relationship. The word in the Greek literally means face to face. It is this face to face, deep, intimate relationship that Jesus had with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. They were face to face from eternity past. There has never been a time where they were not uniquely known to each other and uniquely equal in every aspect. The Father's not more omnipotent than the Son. The Son is not more omniscient than the Holy Spirit. There is perfect equality within this community from eternity past. And Jesus never, ever was apart from face to face to, with his Father. It says that Jesus prays in John 17. He says, oh, righteous father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me, meaning his disciples. The word I know you there is not an intellectual thing. I know about you. The word is epigonosco, which means an experiential knowledge. I know you personally. There's never been a time where Jesus has not known the father. Here's the fourth thing we need to see. Jesus shares the same essence of the Father and the Spirit. He's the same essence. Now, this is what trips up many religions. This is what tripped up many people, and they form heresies as a result of this. Jesus says, and John puts it this way, and the Word was God. Jesus was not like God. The Jehovah's Witnesses wrongly interpret this and say that Jesus is a little God. He's not quite God, but he's a little bit God. No, the purpose here, John says, is he's the same essence of God. He is equal with God the Father. He is equal with the Holy Spirit. He, in fact, is God. And this is so important for us to know. Because many people want a human Jesus, but they don't want a divine Jesus. 
And you cannot separate the divinity and the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is God in every aspect, in every way. And let me tell you, Jesus did not shy away from telling people he was God. You remember when the disciples came to him and Jesus asked him when they were in Caesarea Philippi, he says, who is it that people are saying that I am? And they talked about what the people were saying. Some say you're Elijah, some say you're a prophet, some say you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. You know, they come up with all these thoughts. And Jesus said this, who do you say that I am? You remember what Peter said? He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus didn't say, whoa, 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 Peter, thank you, man. Thanks for that, buddy. You're going a little bit overboard there. Come on now. You're going a little beyond the... No, he never said that. He said, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven revealed this to you. And in essence, Jesus is saying, Peter, you got it right. I am God. 100%. Here's the last thing. Jesus shares the same eminence of the creator. Jesus is the agent of creation. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the author of all life. Jesus is the agent of creation. Jesus is the one who spoke everything into being and without him there is no life. All human life flows from the command of the living word saying, let there be light. And Jesus himself is the creator of everything that we see. In his eminence, he is creator of all things. So he is God. He is divine. He is unlike anything that the world has ever seen. He is co-eternal with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. And there's never been a time where Jesus did not exist as God and as creator. Now, that's who he is in his divinity. But John could have left him at that, but he didn't. In verse 14, he brings out Jesus as man. It's one thing for us to see the reality that he is God. It's another thing for us to see the reality of his humanity. Jesus as man, and the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John teaches us four things here about his humanity, and we can't miss this, because this is the most declarative statement in all of the New Testament of the humanity of Jesus Christ. And the four things he tells us is this. Number one, Jesus shares in our humanity. He shares in our humanity, and the word became flesh. Now, notice what he didn't say. He didn't say the word became human. He didn't say Jesus just came down and took a human body, that Jesus took an avatar, and he filled this empty human body with his spirit, and he just lived through this human body, and then after the crucifixion and the resurrection, he got a new body. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, and he became flesh. Why did he choose the word flesh? For some writers, flesh is negative. It talks about our fallen sinful nature. But for John, he's showing us that he became flesh because he wants us to understand that he experienced everything that you and I experience as humans. Because he was flesh, he was hungry. 
Because he was flesh, he was thirsty. Because he was flesh, he got frustrated with people of little faith. He was disappointed. He was rejected. He wept over the death of his friends. He rejoiced over the joys of their life. Jesus felt pain. Jesus felt heartache. Jesus felt temptations. Jesus felt struggle. Jesus felt emotional weariness. Jesus was tired. He slept. He had headaches. He stumped his toe. He hit his finger with a hammer. He knew humanity like you and me. This is not some distant God who is staying on the throne, but he's one who took on everything that you and I understand. He went through the birth canal of his mother like you and I do. He grew in wisdom and stature of both men and God. He experienced everything that you and I experience. He was 100% human. And there's no feeling that you ever feel that he did not feel did not have to struggle with. God and humanity perfectly blended together in the human divine person. So he became flesh. He knows our humanity. But Jesus also shows us his humility and he dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. That word means to pitch a tent It is the word tabernacle, which means this, that Jesus set up tabernacle with us. He came to our broken world. He came to our sin-ridden world. He came to the place of rebellion and rejection. He came to this place that ultimately the people will nail him to a cross and spit on him and treat him in the most uncompassionate ways. And in the midst of all of that, he humbled himself to step out of the glories of heaven to come to this broken place For you and for me, the perfect humility that Jesus demonstrates blows our mind. Paul captures this in Philippians chapter two. He says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Look, it's one thing for him to come and just walk among brokenness. It's another thing for him to come and allow himself to be broken for us. That's what he did. Can you imagine the humility of stepping out of heaven to become a human, it'd be kind of like you and me looking down and we see maybe the most despised creature that God has created. I would just say it's the roach. (laughs) I have no idea why a roach exists. And if my ministry for the rest of my life is to kill them, I will fulfill my ministry. (laughs) But can you imagine becoming a roach so you can lead the roaches of the world to freedom? Now, you and I think that's gross. We can't even comprehend the condescending nature of Jesus to become one of us. And he did it. Demonstrating his absolute humility. Here's the last, third thing. Jesus continues in his divinity. 
glory as the only son from the father. Here's what we need to understand. When Jesus left heaven, he did not empty himself of his divinity. There's some groups that will say that what happened was Jesus just filled an avatar, a body, and there was no spirit of that. And he came and he filled this. And when, then when it died, that body was not human. So Jesus went right back up. And some say that, no, what happened, there was a man named Jesus and the, and the son of God came and filled him at baptism. And just before he died on the cross, the spirit, Jesus' spirit left and went to heaven. And then the man died, trying to separate the humanity and the divinity. But you cannot separate those because he never once divested of himself of his divinity. Now, did he limit himself? Absolutely. Did he limit his own glory? Absolutely. John chapter 17 says that he prays that he would receive the glory that he had with the Father before he came. And so Jesus was completely divine and human at the same time. It's called the hypostatic union. And we can't totally comprehend it, but he never released his divinity. He was always God and always man. Fourthly, he models great empathy. Jesus models great empathy. He came full of grace and truth. Now, this is really important. Moses came with the law. The law became burdensome and heavy. Jesus came with truth and grace. Truth and grace. He always speaks the truth about the Father. He always speaks the truth about humanity. And in the midst of that, he covers people with his grace. As we'll see through the Gospel of John, as we go all through it, you're going to see those matching together. Truth and grace, truth and grace, truth and grace. Truth without grace is legalism. Grace without truth is liberalism. Grace and truth is liberty. That's freedom. And Jesus models this perfectly in our own lives and he demonstrates this to us. And here's what John comes to. He says that he is God, he is man, that we must understand that if we're gonna worship the Jesus of the Bible, we cannot divest him of deity and we cannot divest him of humanity. If you take away the humanity of Jesus, you have a false Jesus. If you take away the deity of Jesus, you have a false Jesus. He is both God and he's both man. And he never ceases to be those two combined together. So what does John say? In chapter 1, verses 11 to 13, here's the first call for us to believe. He says he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. There's some people here today that may be listening to this. Some of you watching online, you're going to say, that's ludicrous to think a person could be God and man. And you will reject the message outright. But he goes on, he says this, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. For those who believe that he is God and that he is man and that he lived a perfect sinless life and he died on the cross for our sins and he paid the debt and redeemed us with his own blood to you, you have been given the right to be called sons and daughters of God. Why is this important? Why is it so important for that you and I live to believe that he's both God and man? Let me give you some points in closing. As God, there is nothing Jesus does not know. 
as man, he understands what I don't know. As God, he knows perfectly all things. As man, he understands our own confusion with our own lives. Here's the second thing. There's nothing he cannot do as God. Because Jesus is God, he has all power. And he understands all of my weaknesses. There's nothing about you that he doesn't see. There's no weakness in your own heart that he does not recognize. And there's no lack of his ability to change your life. As God, there's nothing he cannot overcome. He's omnipotent. There's no struggle in your life that is too big for him. And as man, he understands every one of our temptations. Every one. Because he has experienced every temptation, but without sin. He never sinned and gave in. So he knows the intensity of the temptations that you and I feel. As God, he can forgive me of my sins. He's the only one who has the right to forgive my sins. As man, he understands our failures. He never personally failed. But he has seen the failures of humanity and he knows every single struggle and fall. As God, he gave me eternal life. He's the only one who can forgive me my sins and make me right with the holy God. As man, he understands our eternal state. He knows we're lost without him. As God, he can give me peace that goes beyond my wildest understanding. Because he knows the chaos of our own lives and our own souls. As God, he can make me whole. As man, he knows my brokenness. He knows your struggle. He knows your questions. He knows your doubts. He knows your propensities to disappoint. He knows all of those things. There's nothing he doesn't know. So here's the call today. The Jesus of the Bible is God. And he is man. And perfectly together, he came so that he would walk with you and he would walk with me. And in believing that, you know what it does? It leads me to a deeper worship of him. He's not just some man in the pages of a book. He is God. He is my God. He is my Savior. He is my Redeemer. He is my Deliverer. And because of those things, I can bow and I can worship him for who he is. And as man, there's nothing I can ever experience that he has not experienced. There's no struggle. There's no passion. There's no disappointment that I will ever face. Let me tell you, nobody in this room, nobody hearing my voice can ever say, God, if you could just walk in my shoes. Because he already has. There's nothing that he cannot fulfill in your life. And so when I walk with this balance of divinity and humanity, it drives me to a confidence that there's a God who not only loves me, but he knows me. 
and he can deliver me. Believers in Christ, you who are believers, walk with that assurance every day that he is both God and man. And if you're an unbeliever here today, here's what I want to challenge you in. I want to challenge you to consider the thoughts of how far God would go to save you. And this is the Jesus we begin with, God and man. And he has a beautiful name, Jesus, the name above all names. His name means God saves. And we can know that today. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to close this in prayer. We're going to stand together and we're going to sing a closing song in worship and adoration to Jesus, our King. Would you stand? Would you stand? Father, we thank you that you have shown us who Jesus is. And Father, that we would grow to worship him, that we would have a higher view of understanding his deity. But Father, we would be thankful daily for his humanity. That because of his humanity, he died on a cross. Because of his perfection, he was the perfect sacrifice. He suffered for us. And Father, because of your plan, you raised him from the dead. And today he is alive as God and King. He has always been God. He is our Savior. And Father, in closing, we lift our voices to worship the God who saves and our God who is. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. And we hope that God uses this message in you to transform you more into the image of Christ. If you have any questions about our church or you want to learn more about Jesus, visit our website at scottsill.org slash next steps. Till next time.